Hello, and welcome to the 10th episode of the Guidehouse Insights Plugged In Podcast, where we go deep into emerging sustainability topics behind electric trailers to electric cars to break into electric boogaloo. I'm Jake Foos, a research analyst on the Insights Transport team. My recent research has been about electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, and sometimes electric autonomous vehicles. This month, we are speaking with Jack Moss about his work on hydrogen electrolyzers. Jack is a senior research analyst on the Guidehouse Insights Hydrogen Innovations team, where his work focuses on hydrogen production technologies, industrial demand, the decarbonization of long-distance transportation, and interactions between low-carbon technologies. He's in charge of trackers, leaderboards, and research reports on the state of hydrogen globally and where it is going. Before joining Guidehouse, Jack worked for Informa, a UK-based publishing, business intelligence, and exhibitions group. Jack has a master's in energy policy from the University of Sussex and a BA in English from the University of Nottingham. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast, Jack. Thanks, Jake. Glad to be here and looking forward to talking hydrogen with you. Always looking forward to hearing about it. Jack, to start looking at your bio, it looks like you kind of had this career and then you hard pivoted into hydrogen. What pushed you to change into working in sustainability and more specifically working in hydrogen? Yeah, good question, Jake. I think from my perspective, it didn't really feel like a hard pivot. So I actually worked in conference organization uh, for the energy sector. We're doing energy events on various low carbon energy technologies and some not so low carbon energy technologies. And I think while I was doing that, I had the opportunity to learn you know, a lot about the energy system, also about hydrogen specifically. I kind of realized over time that was really the direction I wanted to take my career in. So I took a year out to get my master's. I had a focus on hydrogen in my in my dissertation there, looking at kind of the European hydrogen policy space. And then came came out of that from the master's and and started my work at Guidehouse. Um, and in terms of what I find interesting about hydrogen, I think what why it's a really great topic to focus on for someone who who has you know a lot of curiosity about the energy system is it allows you to look at pretty much every part of it. So I got to work on topics related to power generation, get on to work on topics related to the power system more generally on heavy industry, manufacturing, materials, uh, long-distance transportation. There are questions over whether hydrogen really has a role to play in, in all of those sectors, which I think we'll get on to, get on to shortly. But ju- just in terms of a, a research area, I think it's, it's, it's a good one because it, it stays fresh in terms of things I can, I can cover. Yeah, I hope that we get a chance to get into each and every one of those. Listeners might have a general understanding, I think, of how electricity works to power things, but they might not get, I think, how hydrogen works as an energy carrier. Could you give a quick primer on hydrogen as an energy carrier? So I think the, the, the first point to make really is that if you look at hydrogen production today, most of it isn't for energy purposes. So there's something like 70 to 100 million tons per annum of hydrogen produced today, depending on whether you include byproduct hydrogen or just focus on on-purpose production. Uh, and almost all of that is for industrial feedstock applications. So we're talking stuff like ammonia production, methanol, uh, petroleum refining. But then there is this anticipated role in future where hydrogen actually acts as a way of transferring energy both in time and over distances. So so this is what we mean when we talk about hydrogen uh, as an energy carrier. So you can, for instance, take renewable electricity. You can use that to generate hydrogen using an electrolyzer, which is one of the technology I focus on quite closely. Uh, And then you can either convert that hydrogen into another molecule. So that's hydrogen derivatives. So something like ammonia or e-methanol or synthetic fuels, or or you can just take that hydrogen directly. You can transfer it in a pipeline. You can put it on a ship. You can store it somewhere. And then this allows you to bring energy from places where 
potentially you have high renewable energy potential and transfer that to other regions where you potentially have very high energy demand, but not so much of that, that energy available. And likewise, you can produce it at times like in the summertime when you potentially have a lot of solar energy and then store that for, for periods of the year uh, where you have less energy. So that, that's what we mean when we talk about hydrogen as an energy carrier. But a lot of the focus of, of the, the, the technologies initially might just be on decarbonizing these feedstock applications that I've talked about. It's still kind of a question that's, that, that's up for debate how much of a role hygiene is going to play as an energy carrier. Could you give us also a question of what industries are currently using hydrogen as an energy character or as a decarbonization tool? And which industries do you expect to use hydrogen or expand their use of hydrogen in the future? Sure, sure. So the way I like to think about it is to sort industries into three buckets. So have you said there's there are some existing industries that, that use hydrogen. So this is mostly fossil-based hydrogen, uh, gray hydrogen, which is pretty emissions intensive. So those are the ammonia industries. They're using it primarily to, to create fertilizer. The refining industry, they're using it for, for hydro-treating and hydro-cracking petroleum-based fuels. And it's the methanol industry. So basically chemical industries and, and um, uh, the fossil fuel industry. So those are the existing ones that we need to decarbonize. Then I'd say the, the second bucket is new users. So, so industries that currently don't use too much hydrogen, but have pretty high certainty of demand due to the fact that there aren't really many other uh, competing decarbonization options there. So the main ones I would highlight there are, are really the steel industry. You know, there's, there's really only CCS uh, and, and some electrified pathways that, that hydrogen can compete with. But most analysts feel that the steel industry is going to be a pretty strong demand driver for hydrogen. And then you have aviation and shipping, which for the most part are going to consume hydrogen in the form of derivatives. Maybe aviation will have a, a stronger role for, for liquid hydrogen. But again, there, there aren't really too many other uh, ways of decarbonizing those industries. You can use biofuels and so forth, but we see supply constraints there, which which may not constrain the, the uptake of hydrogen, at least in theory. Then you have a kind of whole range of other end uses in the third bucket where there are other options and it's really not so clear how much of a role hydrogen is going to play. So I would kind of put within that final category stuff like power generation, industrial heat, domestic heat, so that's heating people's homes with hydrogen that comes through your, your sort of existing gas networks, personal vehicles. I mean, this was a big thing 10, 15, 20 years ago. People are still talking about it, but but I think the the case for, for hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles is, is kind of diminishing over time and some of the focus is shifting to these these existing applications also have heavy duty trucking rail and there's a there's a pretty good heuristic floating around that people can use to kind of understand the priority of these of these applications called the hydrogen ladder anyone who's familiar with uh, michael liebreich and his work will will know where to find that and it kind of ranks all of these different applications i've talked about by the by the level of priority and by the likelihood of hydrogen adoption. And as I said, that pretty much comes down to whether you have other options that hydrogen is going to compete against or whether it really is the, the kind of leading pathway. Could I give a quick, like, stop and ask a definition of, you said gray hydrogen. I know there's green hydrogen. There's other colors of hydrogen. Could you let everyone know what the different colors of hydrogen mean? So gray and black 
are your conventional fossil-based hydrogen production, gray is from natural gas, black is from coal, sometimes people include brown in there as well, so that would be lignite, which is a type of coal. Then you have your electrolytic pathways, which is, is what I'm mostly focused on. So you have green hydrogen, which is produced using an electrolyzer, but the electricity inputs you use for that are, are renewable electricity inputs. You could also have pink hydrogen, so same technology on the hydrogen production side, but you're using nuclear electricity for it. And then finally, yellow. Sometimes people mean solar produced hydrogen with that, but generally they mean hydrogen that's produced using electricity from kind of mixed grid sources. So if you just plug an electrolyzer into your existing grid and produce hydrogen using that pathway, that's what yellow hydrogen is. And then you have some decarbonized hydrocarbon-based pathways. So the main ones people talk about are blue, which is an existing technology for producing hydrogen, the same stuff you're using to produce gray hydrogen. So typically a steam methane reformer or an autothermal reformer, but then you're plugging carbon capture and storage onto that. So you're capturing most of the, the, the CO2 that would be produced by that process to decarbonize it. Or turquoise, um, which is uh, pyrolysis. So that's, a, that's a different way of producing hydrogen from natural gas, typically, sometimes from uh, from waste products. And it's a lower level of technolo technological readiness compared to these kind of blue pathways that I've talked about. But the benefit is that instead of producing CO2 in a gaseous form, you actually produce carbon black. So it's a, a solid material, which is easy to handle. And you can also sell as a, as a commodity product. And then the final type of hydrogen, which is sort of rising in the debate now, but probably the, the least that's known about it is natural hydrogen. So that's sometimes given the color gold. So this is naturally occurring hydrogen in geological formations, which could be extracted just in the same or in similar ways to how you would currently extract fossil gas. So it's not just different colored gases, it's, it's where they're coming from. Yes, exactly. All of these types of hydrogen are in fact the same color. <laughs> <laughs> but we have these these helpful color codes to, to help people distinguish between them. And there's a whole litany of other terms, low carbon hydrogen, clean hydrogen, which people, you know, use in different ways, depending on which source you look at. Low carbon hydrogen might mean blue hydrogen, it might mean blue and green hydrogen. Clean hydrogen might just mean green hydrogen, might mean all decarbonized forms of hydrogen. Personally, I, I find that the color code easiest to work with. You just kind of have to get used to to working with lots of different forms of terminology when you're working in, in the hydrogen space. And I want to uh, also go into, you mentioned, you mentioned multiple times using electrolyzers to produce hydrogen. What exactly is an electrolyzer? Are there different types of electrolyzers or is electrolyzer just a single monolith? An electrolyzer is on a very simple level. It's a technology we use to separate the hydrogen and the oxygen contained within water molecules. There are four dominant types of, of electrolyzer technology that people typically talk about and a few that are kind of up and coming, less well-developed technologies. So the, the main ones are, are alkaline. So that's uh, the most mature technology. It's been around since the early 20th century. It's typically thought to have pretty low capex relative to the other technologies at least when you look at the stack level so the stack is kind of the, the core of the electrolysis system where the reactions occur uh, but it's got a pretty high system footprint i.e it's large and it's not very flexible if you're trying to run it off of intermittent renewable electricity sources it's it's not very well adapted to handle that then you have hem which is polymer electrolyte membrane that's that's probably the other the other biggest technology that has uh, a few advantages so it, it's much more flexible than alkaline it's got a smaller system footprint but at present it's got higher capex on the stack level and the reason for that is because you need critical mineral inputs for, for the catalyst. So you need 
platinum group metals, iridium, platinum itself for the catalyst. So it's quite sensitive to, to the cost of these material inputs. Although the, the amount of platinum group metal loading is, is declining over time. Then you have solid oxide technology. That's a high temperature electrolyzer technology. So this is running at something like 500 to 800 degrees centigrade. And the advantage of running at these high temperatures is that you can use external heat sources. So for instance, if you're coupling with a high temperature industrial process or if, or if your generator is operating at high temperatures, so think of a nuclear plant, and using that external heat source actually allows you to get much improved efficiency levels. So if you look at alkaline and PEM efficiencies are something like 65-70% at the stack level again. With solid oxide, we're talking 85%. But the disadvantage of high temperature operation is that you've got faster degradation rates. So, so the system declines in performance more rapidly, you're going to need to replace the stacks. And you've also just got higher capex for the stacks as well and for, and for the associated balance of plant, in fact. And then the, the, the final technology out of those kind of core four is anion exchange membrane. I think that the simple way to think about anion exchange membrane is it's a technology that combines some of the advantages of alkaline, so, so the lack of critical mineral inputs with the performance characteristics of PEM. So it's it's a smaller system. It's, it's pretty flexible to use. But today, the, the capex is still pretty high. We expect that by around about the early 2030s, it's going to be competitive on a, on a capex level with alkaline and PEM. And then at the kind of earliest stage of development, you have a few technologies that we haven't really seen in practice, but at least in theory sound pretty uh, impressive. So you have CFE, that's capillary fed electrolysis, as one uh, company that, that that's developing that. And they claim that they can achieve system efficiencies of 95% or more. And then there's another technology termed ETAC, which it isn't exactly an electrolyzer technology because it actually separates some of the reactions that happen within the stack and electrolyzes into two independent steps. But essentially, it's achieving the same end result. And again, they claim that they can achieve efficiencies of 95%. Those are each of the, the main technologies. So then I guess the question of the market research we do, what are the different business models for these hydrogen companies, both, I guess, product developers and technology providers? Are companies manufacturing it and then being the end seller? Or are there different companies at each stage and different business models all the way through? I, I think that's a, that's a helpful differentiation to make between project developer side and the technology provider side. And there are so many other different players that are involved in, in the hydrogen space as well that are following different business models that I don't think we'll be able to touch on. But if you just look at project developers, there are a bunch of different business models that are being followed there. So a few of the players we're tracking are dedicated hydrogen project developers. So these are companies that are just set up to put, to put together hydrogen projects. And they're often looking at producing derivatives. They're, they're often looking at ammonia, emeth, and all stuff like this. So they'll typically set up a project in a location with particularly attractive economics on, on the generation side. And they're really looking for kind of long-term offtakers for these derivative products. Then you have another class of developers which are already existing industrial end users. That can in include oil and gas majors as well. So they're really looking at setting up projects to serve their own demand. They might also supply to, um, to other kind of co-located end users, but their, their primary focus is on decarbonizing uh, their existing applications. With the oil and gas majors, they're, they're doing a bit of that in, in terms of their, their refinery facilities. They're also looking at setting up these kind of larger export-focused projects as well. And then the, the kind of final company class I would mention here, utilities. So they can be setting up projects for different reasons. They might be looking at grid injection, so producing hydrogen to inject into natural gas infrastructure. They might also be looking at having uh, electrolyzer projects act as dispatchable load sources. So being able to use the fact that you have this kind of 
large source of electricity demand that you can choose when you can switch it on or switch it off and you can kind of provide some grid services by being able to do that so it's combining kind of different revenue streams maybe on the grid injection side maybe on the on the uh, electricity system flexibility side then if we think about the technology providers i guess i'll focus just on electrolyzer manufacturers but again i, I think there are a few different business models that companies uh, are pursuing there I, I like to think of it in four different categories. So you have some manufacturers who are just focused on the stack. So they really only focus on the, on the kind of core technology where the hydrogen is produced. And they'll leave some of the, the kind of more complicated system integration stuff or, or bringing components together to EPCs. Other companies are module manufacturers. So could you real quick define EPC? Sorry. Uh, engineering, uh, procurement and construction companies. Got it. So you have module manufacturers as well. So they're kind of, they combine the, the stack manufacturing with some pre-integration. They don't provide fully integrated projects in terms of integrating it at the site, but they'll provide the stack plus, you know, the, the essential balance of plant, typically in a containerized form. And that can be delivered through a project, these these electrolyzer modules can kind of be stacked together and then if there are additional balance of plant required those can be those can be integrated on the outside and then the final two kind of categories of manufacturer which are probably fewer players are active in this but but there are a couple is is providing a turnkey model so that's where you actually do some of the epc work as well so some companies are, are, are providing partnerships with epc players where they create a new joint venture company which can do these kind of turnkey projects where they'll bring all of the equipment together they'll set up your project for you and then you as a developer take ownership of that project or finally you could get some manufacturers which actually get involved in owning the assets as well so they will they will manufacture everything they'll have to source some components from tier one suppliers but they'll bring everything together set it up on site and then they'll actually own the asset and supply hygiene so a pretty good example there is a is us company plug power where they're, they're a manufacturer and they're a hydrogen producer and they also get involved in certain types of end uses so they have this hydrogen powered forklift line of work as well this is a really good dive into just kind of like physically how hydrogen gets produced but i kind of want to take a step back and kind of look at it as this like emerging decarbonization technology and with those usually supply and demand never seem to really match up this early how are the supply and demand differences for hydrogen production i guess both in terms of where people want the technology and where people want the actual hydrogen gas itself right right i mean this is a perennial issue for hydrogen if you if you attend any hydrogen conference you'll hear people mention the chicken and egg problem probably every 10 minutes someone someone will mention that if you made a drinking <laughs> game out of it you'd... <laughs> you, you and you can you ironically use it to cook too <laughs> exactly so it, it is a problem because the the applications for hydrogen are pretty immature and if you want to set up a project where you're producing hydrogen you need to reduce risk which means that you need to have offtake agreements for your hydrogen agreed in advance and it's difficult to do that if if you don't have an existing market that you're able to sell into right and in terms of the the solutions to that there are a few different approaches so so to my mind i think policy is going to play a, a really big role in that um, a good example is something called the the H2 Global Scheme. So this is an initiative in Germany aimed at developing an import market for hydrogen derivatives. And, and what's what's interesting about that scheme is that the state is backing a non-profit entity which acts as a go-between between consumers and producers. So producers know that they can sell to this, this intermediary ent um, entity. And likewise, end users know that the supply is going to be there because this intermediary exists and is able to buy 
by the derivative product. So that kind of reduces the level of uncertainty and difficulty for players on, on both ends of the spectrum. Then another approach that's being pursued to solve this, this chicken and egg problem is the idea of hydrogen hub and valley projects. So these, these are these kind of big integrated projects where producers and end users and other stakeholders come together to develop a single infrastructure in a, in a specific geographical area. Guidehouse has actually been very involved in, in putting some of these types of projects together. There's, the, there's this big program in the US to develop hydrogen hubs. I think something like seven to 10 have been selected so far for federal funding. And Guidehouse has been involved in, in supporting some of those hub initiatives. Then if you think about the, the technology side and whether there's a potential for supply demand imbalances there, it's kind of a, a knock-on effect of what you're seeing on production in that technology players won't be able to supply their products unless there's demand for the molecule because you need demand for the molecule in order to set up the projects. So what we're seeing is that there is some concern that some of the electrolyzer manufacturing capacity is actually being scaled up more quickly than, than the hydrogen production projects are. And the reason this is happening is that manufacturers are seeing some of the policy targets that are in place. Uh, they're seeing some of the projections for how much demand is going to be there. And they're building manufacturing capacity on that basis. And or at least they're announcing manufacturing capacity on that basis. So when you actually look at the numbers in terms of the amount of manufacturing capacity that's being been announced and the amount of projects that have been announced, even though there is a very impressive project pipeline, particularly in Europe, the manufacturing capacity figures still exceed that project pipeline. But if you look at what's actually getting built on, on the manufacturing side, manufacturers are, are, are pretty... They're pretty canny. They're not going to build more capacity than they need to service demand. So typically they're waiting for firm orders to kind of undertake these scale-ups. So they might have announced a manufacturing site for say one gigawatt of capacity for 2025. But in terms of how they actually reach that one gigawatt, it might take them past 2025. They can add to it kind of gradually as they see the project pipeline moving from these kind of early announced feasibility study kind of stages towards something you know more closely resembling a, a functioning industry final point not going to go into it too much but there could also be some constraints on, on some of these these other technologies that you need in order to set up electrolyzer plants so like i said it's not just the stack there are all of these different balance plant components stuff like power electronics compressors and the like and again there are concerns over whether those will be able to to scale up uh, to meet the the anticipated demand. When you read climate work, especially in this kind of era when like COP28 just happened, you always see hydrogen, you know, mentioned as this necessary piece of the overall decarbonization market. Is there enough supply and demand to deliver the kind of role you often see hydrogen used in these net zero roadmaps, especially when it comes to transportation is where I see it a lot. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really key question. When you see some of these scenarios for for 2050, You'll, you'll see organizations talking about, you know, hydrogen meeting 10 or 20% of final energy demand. It's possible, but I am a little skeptical about it. I think even if you take some of these big sectors individually, so you mentioned transportation, if you take aviation and shipping, or if you take steel, and then think about if we want to deliver most of the demand there using green hydrogen, so hydrogen produced from renewable electricity, you're talking about adding quantities of renewable energy capacity that are pretty much equivalent to the entire installed capacity base that exists today to meet demand from, from even individual sectors there. So it's going to be really hard, not just in terms of scaling up the, the electrolyzer capacity, but just, just ensuring that you have enough renewable 
energy capacity in place, not only to decarbonize our existing electricity system, not only to decarbonize all of the additional sectors that we're planning to electrify, so road transport, but to meet all of this demand that's going to come from, from green hydrogen production. That's not to say that it's impossible. It just means that it's going to be tricky. And I don't think we should get too tangled up in questions of how much of final energy demand hydrogen is going to meet in 2050. We don't need to know that in order to know that we should be investing today. And to my mind, you know, we've talked about how there's an existing fossil hydrogen sector, which needs to be decarbonized. It's a pretty big sector. It's already going to be a big challenge to decarbonize that sector. And there's a there's a big investment case for, for producing these technologies, for deploying projects in order to decarbonize that sector. So let's see how much progress we make on that front. And then we can adjust our expectations for the overall role that hydrogen can play in the energy system after that. We, we're almost certainly going to need hydrogen for, for aviation, shipping and steel. But let's focus on the stuff that we can do today before we start worrying about that picture come net zero. Are the government policies around hydrogen generally supportive from a lot of these, you know, large governments that are trying to install a lot of capacity or are they have there been barriers that hydrogen as an industry needs to overcome? I would say yes to both there. <laughs> so I think <laughs> so it always goes, isn't it? <laughs> there's been a lot of uh, political will to support hydrogen. That's that's evident and that's the case in the EU, it's the case in the US, at least at least over the last year, year and a half. And there's been a lot of funding announced, again, particularly in the US, but also in the EU. But the challenge isn't so much now how much funding is available, although that is still an issue in, in Europe. The challenge is more about getting those instruments calibrated correctly so that you can improve the investment case, both on the production side and on the demand side, because you don't get one without the other. And then the challenge is also about putting the right rules in place so that you don't get unanticipated outcomes. So there's been this this long discussion in Europe and it's now kind of kicking off in the US or not, or not kicking off. It's been going on for about a year, but but we, it hasn't been as, as long a period of time as, as, as it went on for in, in the EU about emissions accounting. So how do you ensure that when you have an electrolyzer and it's connected to the grid and it's using a power purchase agreement, for instance, to, to prove that the, the electricity it gets is from renewable energy sources, what rules do you put in place there to ensure that you aren't inadvertently actually redirecting renewable electricity that would otherwise be used for decarbonizing the grid or that you aren't inadvertently producing hydrogen at periods of time when your renewable energy asset is actually not feeding into the grid and how strict do those rules need to be you don't want them to be too strict because you don't want to make it impossible for people to build projects but at the same time you don't want the rules to be so lax that you're actually increasing economy-wide emissions from deploying what, what you're terming to be green hydrogen projects. And my sense there is what you probably need is some regulatory flexibility at the outset and then have that move towards stricter rules as the industry scales up. But again, you know, if it, one of the things you hear all the time at hydrogen conferences is chicken and egg. The other is people complaining about policy and regulation, even though there is clearly so much will from policymakers to make the hydrogen economy a thing and also to to promote the role of their own economies as leading technology exporters or, or have their economies demonstrate that decarbonization can occur through hydrogen rapidly. 
Yeah, and you mentioned the U.S. and the EU as big hydrogen supporters, at least recently. Are those geographically where you're seeing hydrogen as a significant part of this both decarbonization market in terms of energy, but also, you know, just a general market? Or is this happening globally or is this happening in certain areas specifically? I would say that the EU and the U.S. are the, the two markets that I focus on most. That isn't to say that there aren't interesting things happening elsewhere. You're seeing some kind of different models being pursued in different parts of the world. So I think in in the EU, the focus has been very much on decarbonizing heavy industry, also on long distance transportation. The US, it was a little less clear initially what the sectoral priorities would be, but I think it's, it's beginning to concentrate now a bit more on those kind of priority sectors. If you look at East Asia, for instance, so... I'm thinking of Japan, South Korea, Taiwan. There's a very different model being pursued there because their biggest challenge in the energy transition is that they simply don't have enough renewable energy potential to decarbonize their entire economy, or at least it would be very challenging to do so. And they might need some new new technologies in order to do so. So what they're looking for hygiene to do more of is to actors will go back to this energy carrier concept to to allow renewable energy that's being produced in in other regions of the world so think australia in australia you've got a lot of renewable energy potential not so much demand they want to be able to import renewable energy in the form of hydrogen or derivatives and then use that in their power system then you have countries like china where they're actually taking a leading role on deploying electrolyzer capacity so they're the country where you're seeing probably the majority of electrolyzer capacity being deployed today. But a lot of that is about developing technology leadership, Not, which is not to say that they don't also want to decarbonize, but I think it's a real strategic priority for them to be able to corner, corner the, the, the manufacturing market there for, for hydrogen technologies. Then you have countries like India, where it's, uh, again, I think they, they want to do a bit of everything. They want to export hydrogen. They want to produce hydrogen technologies. They want to decarbonize their own existing applications. And I think you, you see this process over time where countries first release a hydrogen strategy that tends to cover more or less everything. Then over time, as they face each of these challenges, try to put together incentive schemes, try to identify what's going to work for them. You see a kind of narrowing focus onto a few priority sectors and potentially on either playing a role as technology manufacturers themselves or or potentially on importing technologies. Thank you, Jack, for joining us here on the Plugged In podcast. To learn more about his work, it's available on the Guidehouse Insights webpage. To keep up with this podcast, please feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we look forward to you joining us for our next conversation next year. Thank you to Guidehouse for providing us this platform of discussion. And to keep up to date on the larger Guidehouse Insights work, follow our Industry Insights blog on the website guidehouseinsights.com. Jack, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it.